Well, I've got to follow Chloe. That was amazing, wasn't it? I, th- I think there should be a break before anybody follows that. Um, thank you again for inviting me here today. I always feel like a, a little bit of a fraud standing in front of you because I joined the army in a long time ago, far too many years ago. And you know, when you sign up for something like the army, there's, a, there's an element of danger joining, joining, you know, joining the forces, really. And I'm quite well aware that you know, I signed up for something that may hurt me, and you guys didn't. You didn't sign up for that. So although it might seem we're slightly different, we're not. Because I do understand that whole idea of pain. I understand that idea of uncertainty. And I understand that idea of, of why me. Um, I'm going to come on to that idea of why me sort of later on in the talk. But I just wanted to get that out there because I always feel, you know, we are different, and I, but I, I think we have some similarities, pain being one of them. Okay, so when I was your age, um, in fact, let me, let me just t- touch on this bit. I, I really try to live my life as if it were a thank you because uh, I think it's really, it's really important to acknowledge uh, acknowledge those around me that have helped me over the years and, and not just through my treatment but outside that as well so when I was a kid probably around your age I had a plan of what I wanted to do uh, I wanted to join the fire brigade and, uh, and be a hero and put out fires and rescue people from cars and save cats from trees when I was at school I volunteered for my local fire brigade um, and they, you know, they let me do my two weeks work experience with them and they gave me a hat, a, a little tunic, some trousers and some boots and off, off I trotted and, and uh, I was a fireman for two weeks and they used to launch me in the back of a, a, fire, a fire engine and take me on little trips around the place and we used to go and check fire hydrants but it was just an excuse to keep me in the vehicle just in case there was a shout and I was there to go with them because they couldn't really leave me by the side of the road. So I was only young, probably 13 years old, uh, and uh, I'd turn up to these RTAs and fires and all sorts and, and rescue cats from trees and stuff like that. But it must have been a bit odd for people seeing this young boy get out of a fire engine. Fireman Simon. So as with all these things, plans kind of change, don't they? They end up sort of moving left or right. I didn't do very well at school, which was actually nobody's fault by my own. It was my own fault because, uh, you know, I was one of those kids that got distracted all the time. So I thought, right, you, although you didn't need qualifications to join the fire brigade, I thought, what else can I do? So I decided to join the British Army, primarily as a medic, and I wanted to, I wanted to save lives and treat people. And I thought it would be another thing, another sort of string to my bow that would allow me to join the fire brigade later on. My experience in the army was brilliant. I enjoyed myself pretty much all the time. You know, there, wasn't, there was obviously times where um, I'd rather not be in the army, but you know, by and large, I had, a, I had a wonderful time. I traveled all over the world, both operationally and, and other bits and pieces. And I went to Bosnia a couple of times. Um, I went to the invasion in Iraq. Uh, I wasn't on my own. There were some other people there with me. Um, that same year, uh, I went to the Congo in Central Africa, uh, and then later on I went to Afghanistan. I'll, come, I'll talk about that in a minute. But also, I took part in stuff. I volunteered for things. And in the army, you're told never to volunteer for anything. But I was kind of the opposite. I volunteered for everything that was going, because I thought to myself, even if it doesn't sound great initially, 
I know that at some point there'll be something on that journey that will be awesome and I'll love doing it. And that, it's true. So most of the time, I mean, it's surprising I actually didn't any work because in the winter I did cross-country skiing and in the summer I did triathlon. I tried to avoid wearing uniform as much as I possibly could. It used to hurt when I was in green. And, you know, like I said, I volunteered for everything. And at the end there was always a reward, whether it was skydiving, whether it was uh, canoeing, uh, whether it was potholing, whether it was sailing. I volunteered for it and I did it. It was an amazing, amazing time. So in 2000, I've got to get this right when I got married. <laughs> That's embarrassing, isn't it? 2009. Um, on the 1st of uh, August 2009, I got married. Um, and I always told my wife it was the luckiest day of her life. <laughs> which is absolutely true. Um, you know, what can I say about my wife? It's, it's, it's important to have a group of people around you. It doesn't have to be family. Um, but it's important to have a group of people around you that look out for you and you can trust. And she's one of those people that looks out for me. So like I said, I was, I was, in, I was, uh, I was married on the 1st of August 2009, which is quite relevant. Because I was deployed to Afghanistan quite soon afterwards. Now, when I flew out to Afghanistan, my job in my head was to sit in a massive great big tent... And with my foot, while I was drinking tea and coffee, pressed this big red button that would uh, deploy medical assets out onto the ground. So what does that mean? So my job was, if there was someone hurt or injured, I would send a helicopter out. That was my job initially. However, I never did that, so I never even got to look inside that tent. I never got to eat the donuts that were there or drink the coffee. It was really irritating. So I got uh, sent out to a really austere place, a really sort of basic area. Um, there was no running water, there was no electricity, but it was one of the best jobs I've ever done because it was pure soldiering in its, in its, um, in its most basic form. It was dangerous. Um, you know, I treated, I treated more trauma in, in the 26 days that I was on the ground than I had in my whole military career at that point. Um, so it was, it was a very dangerous to, uh, area to be in. And this is where I lived. So... Where that ladder is, there's a doorway to the, to the right of it. I lived in there, and that was my bed space. Um, I used to treat people in there. I used to sleep in there. I used to eat in there. I used to hide if there's any jobs going on. Um, and, you know, that's where, that's where I stayed, you know, for a lot of the time if I wasn't on patrol. Um, we used to, I used to share with a couple of mice as well. But, I mean, we got on well, quite well together. There was a language barrier, but we got on all right. And that was my kit. So I used to walk out the front gate with a rucksack that was full of medical supplies um, and Oreos because they're important. Uh, my body armour, which was incredibly heavy. My helmet and my weapon. And just because I was a medic didn't mean to say I didn't walk out with a weapon as well. Uh, and so, you know, I, was, I had an awful lot of kit. And it, it was hotter out there than it was, you know, today um, in the UK. It was really, really hot. So... It's quite a long time ago, but it's, it feels like it was yesterday. And I'm sure that when you got that news, you know, it feels like yesterday. Um, I remember the night before I went out on this patrol, and we were supposed to be gone for about three or four days um, away from our patrol base. And I sat on my bed, and bearing in mind we didn't have any electricity there, so we had candlelight. And I, and I sat on my bed, and I had a bit of a thought to myself. And I had a conversation with my granddad, which is a bit strange because he'd been dead for about six years at that point. 
And it was a very one-sided conversation, but I felt that something was going to happen. I felt that something was around the corner, and I wasn't quite sure what it was. I didn't know if it was a test for me in some way, or um, you know, if somebody else was going to get injured, or if I was going to get injured. But I felt there was something that was going to happen. Anyway, I asked my granddad to look after me, and, and I think he did. And I went to sleep that night quite content and quite settled. I woke up really early in the morning. Um, it was probably about four o'clock, half three, four o'clock in the morning. And I grabbed my kit, that kit that I showed you earlier on, and I didn't want to wake, wake the rest of the guys up. So I grabbed my kit and went out the door and, and then got my breakfast and sorted myself out. I got my body armor on, I got my, my, my day sack on, I got my weapon ready, and then I walked around to join the rest of the guys that were going to leave. And I was actually one of the first around to the sort of the front entrance before we left. And one or two of the guys were just sat there talking to themselves and smoking, which you should not do. Uh, you know, having a bit of a laugh and, 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 and just chilling out before they went out. Now, our interpreter decided that being in bed was more important than going for a walk. And we ended up, you know, being held up. And the fact that we were held up, I think, saved my life, as you'll find out in a minute. So... Eventually he turned out, he turned up, and we got ready to leave. And there was a bit of a, a, there was a a perceptible change in all our attitudes. So we kind of got our game faces on and prepared to leave. And everywhere we went, we went in single file. Because out in Afghanistan, there was mines and bombs in the ground everywhere we went. And we used to walk in single file. And the guy at the front, he would have a metal detector. And he'd swing it in front of him to check what was in front of him. And then behind him, we also follow along behind him. So as we left, I put my night vision goggles down and you know, left with the rest of the blokes. And I was probably about 10th in this file of, of guys. I got about 150 metres outside the patrol base when I activated an improvised explosive device, or an IED. It took off my right leg instantly. My left leg was degloved from my ankle to my knee. I damaged my arm. I don't know if you can see this, but it's quite cool. If I put eyes on it, you can have a conversation. (laughs) Um, I had a few other injuries, but my worst injury, have I got any sort of blokes of the same age group as me? He's looking at his camera. Anyway, so my worst injury was my hairline, and it's never recovered. And apparently they can't buy prosthetics for that. So initially... This blast threw me, and I landed on the floor somewhere else, and I was unconscious for about three or four seconds. But in my mind, it felt like an eternity. And it was like being in the Millennium Falcon going through hyperdrive, because all these stars were kind of rushing at me. And a few questions went through my mind. The first one being, am I injured? Is anybody else injured? And can I treat them? And then I woke up and realized that my life had changed forever, instantly, and nothing was ever going to be the same again. And I guess some of you can kind of relate to that. So I'm lying on the floor and there's dust everywhere, there's smoke everywhere, there's flashes of light, um, there's a firefight going on, so they're shooting at us and we're shooting at them. There's a little bit of torchlight. Um, So in these snatches of light, I can see all my injuries and and I can see exactly what's happened to me. So I'm lying there and, you know, a few emotions went through my mind. Um, One of the first ones was was actually guilt. I felt guilty because I couldn't do my job. And also, one of the first things I said was, why me? And again, I'm going to come to that at the end of, of this little talk. Why me? So there's a little bit more confusion. And at that point, I wasn't a priority. No one was coming to rescue me. 
I was at the bottom of the list because there's so much more to take control of, which is quite unusual because if someone got hurt outside there, everybody would be swarming around, you'd call an ambulance and you'd be holding their hand and you'd look after them. But I was on the bottom of that list, so I was on my own. They had to get the valent man or the guy with the metal detector back out to clear a route to where I was. Now, one of the first guys that came to treat me was a Royal Engineer. Now, everybody thinks that Royal Engineers like fixing stuff. They don't. They like blowing stuff up. And his rucksack was full of plastic explosive. Now, I landed another three foot away from another IED, which fortunately didn't go off. They loaded me onto a stretcher similar to this one here. So a fabric thing. Um, and they loaded me onto that, which can just be stuffed into a, into a day sack. Now, as I was, as I was on this, this stretcher, I was watching the guy on the end, the guy at the Royal Engineer, and I was watching him, and I thought, he's going to fall over in a minute, and he did. And I later found out that the blast had, had affected his hearing, and, and he was really dizzy, he was hyperventilating, and he couldn't really stay on his feet, and he fell over. And as he fell over, I fell out of the stretcher, which wasn't unusual. So I was on the floor, moaning and griping on the floor, and eventually they got a brush and swooped him back into the stretcher, and you know, we made it outside the patrol base. And that's really where they saved my life. Now, I said earlier on that the, uh, the interpreter was, was late getting out of his bed. And this is the reason why I think it saved my life. So the Chinook was already in the air. And that's the Chinook. It's got two propellers. These things are really, really fast. Um, but it's also a mobile A&E department. And this thing was already in the air to go and pick up an Afghan national soldier that had been shot. My wounds were considered much worse, so they diverted the helicopter to me. Um, it wasn't based on who I was, it was based purely on need, so, he, um, so they sent someone else to go and pick him up. This thing landed, um, but before it landed, you know, they, they saved my life. They put bandages on all my wounds, um, they, put, they gave me injections, they put tourniquets around my legs to stop me bleeding. I remember getting loaded onto the Chinook, and they put me down, it was still pitch black, and I was kind of looking for someone I knew. Because all the, all the people out there, all the medical staff were people I'd worked with. And I was looking for a friendly face, um, someone that I knew that could, that could pass a message on to my wife. Because I thought I was going to die on the back of that plane or that helicopter. I didn't think I was going to make it. Now, we were 40 kilometres away from Camp Bastion, which is the main camp. And it took us 10 minutes to get back, really, really quick. I remember it landing. And I remember getting carried off the, uh, the Chinook. And it was kind of the end of a dream for me because the guys that take you off the Chinook are the Camp Bastion Fire Brigade. And it was really, really, I really remember at the time, it was quite poignant to me because I thought that part of the, my life that I thought was going to happen wasn't going to happen. And that was the end of that dream. I remember getting put into the, the ambulance. And again, I was looking for a friendly face I knew. And then um, I, we had a short drive out to the emergency department in, in, um, in Afghanistan. Now, like I said, it was pitch black out there, and we went from the pitch black to me staring at really, really bright lights, and it, you know, it blinded me. They took me in, and they descended on me like a team of locusts and started treating on me, you know, checking on my bandages, making sure my tourniquets were still tight. And I remember, even though my arm was broken at the time, I was holding on to this, this nurse's hand, this beautiful nurse. I've later found out that beautiful nurse was a bloke with a massive great big beard. And he takes great delight in reminding me of this fact. Um, 
it's just funny how your mind plays tricks. Anyway, he looked after me and he made sure that, you know, I, I kind of, I was all right until I got through to, to surgery. Um, because at that point, I was kind of begging to be, to be put to sleep because I couldn't hold on to the pain any longer. It was, it was too much for me. Now, this is where it gets a bit squeamish. So we've all been in hospitals and we've all, you know, we've all been through that experience. Um, this picture was actually taken when I was out in Afghanistan when I got injured because, you know, selfies aren't a new thing. We all like selfies and I took a selfie with the guys on the ground. I always look at this point to see who's going to turn away. And you're all being really awesome. Usually I have to give you money. So this is me when I got injured. Um, clearly I was a... You know, I had jaundice as well at the time. <laughs> so, you know, we've got a, a dark sense of humour, a bit of a funny sense of humour, and, and this amused me. So it's my daughter's sand. Uh, it's my Lego, because, uh, you know, if you've, ever, if you've got your Lego, it's not your Lego, it's your dad's Lego, and that's the end of the, st that's the, end of the argument. Um, you know, I took this on my third anniversary of being injured. I thought it was quite amusing. So this doesn't just happen to you. This happens to those that are close to you as well. And our, you know, our, this goes without saying that you've probably got a loved one somewhere that would take your situation off you in an instant. And I, I had the same thing myself. So my wife was back at home. Um, and when someone gets injured in the armed forces, they send someone around to your house in a car that you don't know. And this guy, in my head, he... You know, he, he parked his car, he got his jacket out of the back of, you know, the back of the vehicle and went to knock on someone's door that he doesn't even know to give them some really bad news. And the news is either going to be your husband's dead or your loved one's dead, your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend is dead, or they're really severely injured. The first thing you're going to think is that they're dead. So this guy knocks on my front door. Um, unfortunately, my wife wasn't in. She was at her boyfriend's house. <laughs> no, she wasn't really. I'm joking. <laughs> Oh, no. No, she wasn't really. She was a primary school teacher, and she had gone to stay with her mum and dad because it was half term at the time. So she wasn't, in, she wasn't in. And I'm really pleased she wasn't in because having to deal with this new reality on her own would have been awful. Um, I was only in hospital for about five weeks. I wasn't in there for very long. Um, but I remember there was a few things that, um, that struck me at the time. And, and I was still dealing with a lot of pain. Even turning over was excruciating you know, it was really, really sore. And uh, there was a few things that got me through it, though. And, and the first one was Homes Under the Hammer. Um, <laughs> I love that programme. And if you ever go, have to go back in hospital again, then watch it avidly. I'll be taking notes later. Um, no, it was just something that got me through it, really. And, and um, if anybody came into my bed space while I was watching it, I used to throw things at them that I didn't need, like socks and shoes and slippers. And bedpans, because who needs a bedpan? Anyway, so I wasn't in hospital for very long. There was one thing that a nurse said to me, um, and it was, it was quite poignant at the time, and I sort of half heard it. And she said to me to try and find three good things from one bad thing. And I laid there, and I thought, to I thought about this, and it really struck me, and it really sunk in. Clearly, I was on a lot of drugs in hospital. Now, one of the rites of passage when you're in hospital is that you get to go to the local pub. Now, 
My wife wasn't taught how to use a wheelchair and neither was I. And I was sat in one of the wheelchairs that you, I couldn't push myself. And I couldn't push it anyway because of my arm. But the wheels were too small for me to push myself. So I got into this wheelchair and my wife was pushing me down, down the road. Now, we were going to cross the road to go to the other side. And she decides that the quickest way to get me on the dropped curb on the other side is to race at it as fast as she possibly can. <laughs> the front wheels hit that curb and I very, very nearly went flying back out of my, my wheelchair. And um, I never have been so close to, to death again since being injured at that point. <laughs> so I left um, Selly Oak, the hospital that I was in, up in Birmingham, and I soon found myself down in Epsom, uh, in, uh, in Headley Court. And I spent the next kind of four and a half years in a cycle of rehab, surgery, um, learning to walk, um, prosthetics, all sort, you, know, you name it, uh, I did it. So I had surgery in, in 2009, 2010, 2011. I took a year off in 2012, uh, 13, and then I had some more in, seven, in 2017. So it was a real cycle of, of the same thing, really. Um, I was walking less than two months after I was injured, albeit I was in a set of bars, um, and I wasn't allowed to take my legs home, but it was something that was really important to me that I needed to do, to do. And the environment allowed me to do that. So after Christmas, um, I decided to, to do things that I'd done before I'd been injured. So before I was injured, I loved cross-country skiing. Um, someone said, oh, have a go at alpine skiing, which is obviously downhill. And I had a, I had a crack. So I sat on this thing, this, um, this ad adaptive ski thing. I don't even know what you'd call it anymore, but... This thing really scared me. I sat in, I was quite vulnerable, um, and I was really, really worried about how well I'd do, because to be honest with you, my arm was still broken. I didn't tell them that, but it was still broken. But by the end of the week, you know, I was getting airborne. Um, is he going to make it? Is he going to make it? No, he's going to face plant. <laughs> so, you know, by the end of the week, I was, I was skiing down some big runs, um, and I, I, was, I was really enjoying myself. But it gave me an opportunity to find out exactly where I was at that time. I also remember I got the chance to go swimming in this German pool, and I got some really funny looks, because they weren't used to seeing injured servicemen that, like they were in the UK. So there was me drowning quite a lot and turning around in circles. And, but again, I knew where I was at, and I knew what I needed to work on. A couple of years later, I got to go cycling. Um, this thing is an adaptive cycle, um, a hand bike, so you steer with um, the pedals as you're pedaling, so it's all a bit, a bit tricky, and you're quite low to the ground so vehicles can't see you. Um, but I really got quite into this, and um, you know, I, I did my first event, we, we cycled across northern France, uh, and then a, a group of eight of us, uh, a fully disabled team, cycled across America. And that's me in Kansas. I never, ever want to go to Kansas again. If you can see on my bike, it's got like a, a flag on the back, which is kind of bent over to the left. That's because there's 50-mile-hour side winds, and it was almost impossible to cycle against. And even if we turn left or right, it seemed to be still coming at us by the side. I don't understand it, but um, I never want to go to Kansas again. I now know why Dorothy left. So this is our route. We went from California through Nevada, Utah, Colorado, Kansas, bleh, uh, Missouri, all, of, all through sort of, you know, those states and found ourselves in, in Annapolis in Maryland. We covered 12 states. We climbed over 100,000 foot. Um, 
we cycled 3,051 miles and we did it in seven days, seven hours and 38 minutes. Not that I was counting at all. But... To be honest with you, I cheated, because I did the first mile and the last mile, I just chilled out for the rest of it. I didn't do much at all, to be honest with you. So that's us at the end. Um, that bear at the back, he was disqualified because there's nothing wrong with him. <laughs> Each of the guys have got their own story to tell, and some of them are Paralympians now. Um, a truly amazing bunch of guys to be with. So before I was injured, like I said, I liked triathlon. So I decided to take part in the Bolton Ironman, which was the dumbest thing I've ever done. Even joining the army was pretty dumb, but that took the biscuit. So I hadn't done a triathlon since I'd been injured, and I decided to do the biggest, hardest triathlon that I could attempt. So I did half the bike. No, I did all, I did half, I did all the swim and half the bike. And I decided that my average speed wasn't going to get me to the end, and I pulled out. And that's all right. You know, attempting something and failing is all right. That's not a problem to do. So I decided to do the Cotswolds Half Ironman, which is a bit flatter, and it's half the distance. Um, it's still a big distance, but I completed it, and it was kind of like finishing that loop of, of stuff that I'd done before and having to go at it again. Now, swimming, open water swimming is my thing. So when I, I, I drove up from Hampshire this morning, and on the way I stopped uh, at an open water swimming um, lake and, and, uh, and, and jumped in and, 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 and did a th three kilometres this morning. I was going to do it here, but I, I don't think they'd have liked that. So anyway, swimming's my thing, and there's a race down on the south coast around a small island called Brownsea Island, and it's about six and a half, six, 6K, something like that. Now, when this picture was taken, I volunteered for this race. Now, soldiers are really stupid. You might have gathered that already. We're really dumb. So I volunteered for this race, and I took no further interest in it, actually what I had to do. So in my head, I thought I had to swim two loops around this island. I didn't. I only had to do swim one loop. When this picture was taken, I took my goggles off and managed to cover my goggles in Vaseline because you had to put it down your neck. So I couldn't see where I was going. Um, I got seasick halfway around because the sea was really rough. At one point, I did hear a French accent, um, but I managed to get back in all right. So. <laughs> but when I go open water swimming, I feel a, a real massive sense of freedom, and I, it gives me a chance to think and centre myself. And if you guys can find something that, that does that for you, I highly recommend doing it. I do cheat, however. There's two things I cheat with. I eat a huge amount of beans before I go, <laughs> which seems to get me around for some reason. And also, I've got no drag. <laughs> um, I did the, the Evictus Games in 2014, and it was an amazing experience. Um, those are my kids. I didn't just take some random children. They are mine. <laughs> so that's my daughter on my shoulders and my little boy, Leo. Um, I've got three, so it's the third one, isn't it? You always forget what the third one's called. <laughs> Amelia, that's it, sorry. So I've got three. My mate decided that he wanted to do um, parachuting. Again, if you've never tried parachuting, have a go, because it is amazing. Um, my mate said that he'd like to have a go, so I signed him up for, I signed him up, so he had to do it. And I thought, I'd better do the right thing, so I, I joined him as well. And that's me, a strap to that guy uh, above me. And we jumped out from about 12,000 foot, something like that. An amazing experience. Again, have a go, because it is, it's one of the best things I've ever done.
So I left the army in 2014, and you know I needed to, to do stuff. So since then, I've really kind of volunteered for a lot of stuff. I've raised a huge amount of money for various different service charities. Um, I've been an ambassador for you know a few of them, and I've just tried to give back because I'm really quite well aware of how much stuff they've done for me. I did a TEDx. You know, I, I did this um, for. If you've ever watched a TED Talk, there's loads of awesome ones there that I'm sure will give you loads of tips and, and, and you know, help you in your journey. But to me, what have I learned from this process? So at the beginning, I said you know, that I tried to live my life as a bit of a thank you. Well, when I was injured, I, had to, I thought back to this. How many people helped me in the first hour or hour and a half or two hours? And I thought about the pilots that flew in to get me out, those guys that carried me from the front line, um, the surgeons that treated me um, initially. I know that I was given over 50 units of blood and half that again in plasma. So 60-odd people that gave me their blood that I'll never even meet. And then I had to think about those other people along the way, you know, my other surgeons, my other doctors, my other nurses, um, my physiotherapists, all those people that were there for me. And that sort of group got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I felt it was my responsibility to repay their debt, uh, you know, that they had given to me by doing stuff to prove that they had done a good job. And so that's what I tried to do. And I, sent, I mentioned earlier on that that idea of, 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 of why me. So I was in hospital and this thing, although it wasn't, it wasn't nagging at me, there was a sense of why me. And, it, and I, it kept on kind of going through my mind. And then the only thing that appeared in front of me was, well, why not me? Because if it's not you, it's somebody else. And why would you wish the stuff that going, you're going through on somebody else? So I always think to myself, well, why me? But then why not me? And then you can't complain about life then because you have to just kind of move on. That's the way I think anyway. And the last thing I'll say before I finish and fall off this stage is to me, life is like a book. Um, and it's really important to keep on turning the pages to keep on moving on to find out what happens in your book. And if you think the book isn't a very good book, you can just put that book down and pick up another one and start reading that one, but keep on turning the pages. Because if you keep on reading the same chapter, there's nothing there but a boring chapter that you've reread over and over and over again, and bitterness and regret. When you know we're designed to move forward, and that's the only thing that we can do. So moving forward is my advice to you: move forward and get busy living. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>